Welcome to Brains Matter, the podcast on science, curiosities, and general knowledge. I'm your host, just an ordinary guy. Welcome to another episode of Brains Matter. Today I have Nick Robinson, who's a director, and he has just released a new IMAX movie called uh, Australia, the Wild Top End in 3D, and it's just been released at IMAX in Melbourne. I was lucky enough to see it on Tuesday night, and I'm also lucky enough to have Nick here with me today. So thank you for your time, Nick. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the, on the podcast. So uh, just as a bit of a starter, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got from where you were as a, a kid growing up to becoming Nick the director? Sure. Um, I was, uh, I guess, I, I mean, I, I grew up with, uh, with the underwater films of people like Jacques Cousteau when I was a child and that, that kind of thing. Just uh, I was enthralled with that and I think I learned to dive when I was about 13 and, and I was pretty much, uh, I, I knew from a very young age that all I wanted to do was make wildlife films. But as I was sort of just going into the end of school, uh, everyone had told me that that wasn't actually a job and that I'd need to be independently wealthy in order to, <laughs> to become a filmmaker that, that concentrates on wildlife stuff. So I went and studied marine biology because that was where I was, um, that was what I was fascinated by, everything underwater and the animals and, and creatures. And, and basically uh, studied that and got out of, uh, you know, my degree as a, as a biologist and, um, and then searched for work in, in film industry, hoping to eventually get where I am now. And um, I did a lot of normal TV jobs, uh, not of feature films, that kind of thing, and uh, eventually found my way into documentary and 20 years into my documentary career made my first underwater film. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a long path back to to the why in the first place I, I went so, there. So how did you go from being a science graduate to working in television because normally they look for someone with media background or, or radio training or you know those sorts of things. Yeah look I mean I guess in the film industry it's a funny one right you, you, you kind of just every most people don't come to it from a degree they come to it from a from from an apprenticeship of sorts and uh, and that's what I did. Um, it was certainly a battle. I was a waiter and a, and a builder's labourer for the first uh, decade, I think, a lot more than I actually worked on mm -hmm. films. But um, eventually got enough work as, a, as an assistant, helping out and slowly worked my way into, into that role. Um, and uh, yeah, I worked in Europe for about 15 years where the documentary industry was a lot bigger than it is here in Australia. I couldn't get a job here. I, I really struggled. So I ended up moving over there and finding some work and, and doing it that way. And uh, and worked my way there as an editor first, so just cutting the films, and then I was in the field as an assistant to the cameraman, and then I was uh, became the cameraman, and then the director, and and now I'm the cinematographer and the director and the producer. It's it's my little company, and which is me and a few friends making these beautiful things. So yeah, it's a real privilege to be in the position I'm in now. So you've done some pretty amazing documentaries. You've you've done. Disabled Bodies Soldiers back in 2010, which was nominated for two AFI awards. You've done a documentary in 2013 on, on Kakadu, um, Life on the Reef, which you've just talked about, which is underwater. How do you go from idea to the point of we're, we're actually getting our cameras out and doing this? 
Well, look, it's a, it's a, it's a long process, the, the TV game. So disabled body, it's actually disabled-bodied sailors, Sorry, which yeah. was a crew of disabled sailors racing in the Sydney to Hobart. Mm-hmm. And, um, and funnily enough, like, that wasn't my idea. That was someone hired me to do a job, and, and, and I got into it and did it, and, and it was amazing. Other jobs, uh, I've had ideas for years, and you pitch them around. You usually got sort of ten things you'd love to do, and for me, it's really just bucket list stuff. I kind of go, I'm really interested in this, this, and this, and I put the ideas out there to the various people that can fund these things, which is always the greatest challenge in filmmaking: is mm. finding the money, and um, and then hopefully one of them gets off the ground, right? And you and you run with that one, and and uh, and from that one, you move on to the next one, and. And it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a, it's a funny path because it's not a it's not something I could have really planned, and I, and I've done a lot of normal commercial jobs as well. I do things to try and pay the bills, and I do things that are passion projects, and you know the the animal stuff is really the passion projects. That's where I always aimed. As while I was making stuff to make money, I would spend my my free time trying to make the first wildlife film so that I could then become established and you know people might take me seriously when I turn up with an idea for one. So with the current documentary um, The Wild Top End, can you tell me the story about how that came to be because a big part of that uh, documentary is the narrator uh, Balang Lewis so uh, could you tell uh, all the listeners who he is, how you met him and how it went from that inception to the making of this particular documentary. Sure. I was making about, it was probably about eight years ago, I think now, maybe eight, something like that. I was making a series called Kakadu for the ABC, which was four hours based in Kakadu and Arnhem Land, following traditional owners, rangers and various people. And, and uh, I really wanted that film to be narrated by uh, a local, so an indigenous person from the top end, from that area. And, and for, for the people overseas, uh, northern Australia is very dry, quite vast. The states are absolutely massive. So Western Australia is about one-third the size of the US. Northern Territory is about half that size again. So just to give a bit, little bit of context yeah. there. It's a big country. with um, uh, that, This area that we're talking about here is, is an area that uh, has... Uh, it would have to be probably, I don't know if it's a hundred or more different clan groups, so clan territories mm-hmm. up there for indigenous people and um, they all sort of interlocked in one way or another and anyway as I was looking for this uh, I was looking for a voice to to read the commentary for this film and to inspire me and I, and I searched far and wide and found a man called Balang T. Lewis who was an amazing sort of Australian because he, he he's he was picked up at an airport one day when he was about 17 by a film director called Fred Skepsi who spotted him just standing in the arrivals hall and Fred was making a film at the time, it's an Australian film called um, The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith and it had, a, it had a lead indigenous character that was a young man and he spotted this, he spotted Balang in an airport and walked up to him and literally just chatted to him for five minutes and then said, would you like to become an actor? <laughs> and and uh, so one of those random things, and Balang, who was a very a very free and adventurous spirit, I think he was learning to be a mechanic at the time, and uh, he went, um, well, will you teach me how to do it? And he <laughs> said, yeah, yeah, come over and we'll teach you. And so they, they spent months teaching him how to be an actor, and then he was in this film, and he was amazing. He was amazing in that film. And Balang's a real artist. He was a great musician, a fantastic. Um, he was in plays, films, and all kinds of things. So very... 
a very outgoing man but then also a man that was conflicted because he was his culture and white Australian culture have been at loggerheads for forever ever since we, we Europeans arrived and um, and Balang was torn between these two worlds because on one side he had to go home and, and, and be traditional and on the other side you had all these people wanting to make movies which is possibly the cultural opposite you know being an extrovert in indigenous culture is is a pretty rare thing to be you don't want to stick your head up too too high and, and so he, he copped a lot of flack for that but he worked his way through it and used kind of art and music and and films to try and bridge the cultural gap between white and black Australia and uh, and he, he pretty much made a career of doing that he was an amazing an amazing man when I met him and he did the voice on my film for Kakadu it just gave that film so much soul and he had a lot of input he changed lines and, <laughs> and made things and, and, and suggested stuff that I was like that's great that's that's perfect it's, it feels like someone from there is telling me that story and so after that film I, I decided I really wanted to make a film with him uh, a wildlife film from an indigenous perspective and we talked about it at length I went up there and camped at his place for a while and hung out and literally chatted and and uh, the concept of this film which was a very loose concept of basically you know a, an, an indigenous take on a wildlife film that carries you across the top end that gives you some cross-cultural understanding of, of what, what it is that they love about that place and what how it is they look after it and um, yeah this is the result this film was uh, you know, we talked about it for five years. We we made it for two. Balang's involvement was I went and talked, spoke to him for ages, and then we shot with him for a few weeks, and then he came and read the script, and it was magical, and and he was amazing. Um, sadly, he passed away just after he read the script, and so he gave us this gift of a wonderful film told by a beautiful voice that that is from that place, and that gives you a, a picture of a landscape and a and uh, a connection to the animals that's pretty rare in a wildlife film, mm. I think. And and so he did that, and we have this lovely movie now, and yeah, sadly he wasn't there to, to see it on a giant screen. He saw it on a little screen, and he certainly loved the message. He was certainly a, a person that wanted to, to you know, a, a great defender of the environment. Tell us a little bit about the making of it. You, you spent 100 days camping in remote places in northern Australia, for example, and some of the scenery we see... Um, you know, you're coming down into vast um, rainforest valleys and looking across broad landscapes. And one of the, the comments in the film that uh, you know uh, stuck with me was, "This is the last bit of forest from the Gondwana forest, which is yeah. uh, the largest forest ever in history from Gondwana land." Yeah. And um, to think that that's in our backyard at the moment, and the the animals that we see, and, and I won't go too much. I'll let you talk about it. But um, uh, how 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 difficult was it to actually get those shots and set the photography up for those sorts of things? So the um, you know, I'd spent a lot of time shooting up that way in in the top end of Australia, all over Australia, actually, just making documentaries. Um, a lot of them people driven, but. I'd spent a lot of time up there. The challenge here was that I, I went and watched a bunch of IMAX films in the US thinking maybe I could make an IMAX film and um, dreaming really because it was a bit of a sort of pipe dream like I didn't think I didn't think a lowly TV filmmaker like me would ever be allowed into this world. But I went to watch the films in the US. I had a look at what was being done. I looked at it and thought, well, I think I can do better than that. I think I could make a good film 
and um, yeah, so I wasn't intimidated by it. And I think when I was in TV, it was the same. I'd watch the Attenborough docos and go, that's amazing. I think we can do that. And we'd try and do that for a lot less. We'd have, we didn't have the same budgets, but we came close to doing the same thing. And, and so for the IMAX one, the challenge was it's a 3D. It has to be 3D and it's got to be you know, super high resolution cameras, so the highest resolution cameras on the market. So instead of having one of the most expensive cameras in the world, you need two of them on the same rig, <laughs> two of the most expensive lenses, two of them, you know, everything was double. And then you need a third in case one breaks down. So so the, there was a, we had to get 3D rigs into these areas and the 3D rig weighs about 50 kilos. The settings of setting up the 3D, so you're filming with two eyes, so you've got two cameras filming the left and the right eye as, as on a human to give you that depth. But there's a whole lot of maths and calculations you have to do for each shot in order to, to work out the exact distance apart and make sure they're perfectly aligned and that kind of thing. So a lot so, more goes into it than you think. Oh, so it's an absolute punish to film <laughs> with these rigs. Like, it's really difficult. And uh, so the first... Um, so there you the, go, kids. Maths is important. Yeah, maths is important. <laughs> Although at the end, I, 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 had, I had some mathematicians explain the maths to me. And then, and then after a while, it became an eyeball thing. I could go, I think that's this. And I wouldn't do the formula anymore because the animals would be gone by the time I'd worked it out. <laughs> but these rigs were really heavy. They're really fragile. They hate dust and moisture. And if you know the, north, the, the, the part of the world that we're talking about here is literally four-wheel drive tracks the roughest roads and you're camping and it's dusty or it's on fire or it's raining torrentially and so it was actually the, the cameras were allergic to the place we were taking them and um and it proved to be the first probably the first 30 days of us being in the bush was just really trying to work out how we could possibly film these things with these rigs in that part of the world um, once we got to, we, we got relatively good at it. We realised that we weren't. Um, we we'd carried these things for. When well, you're carrying a 50 kilo camera rig, uh, you know, between two people, it's just a crew of three people. We slept in a van. Um, we have our, our little off-road caravan, and we have a, a four-wheel drive, and it's got a big box on the back, and the thing was loaded to the hilt, way overloaded with all our equipment, and we'd go out there and hang out. But we got quite good at it at the end. We realised we had to mount the camera on boats or something because carrying it to the animals was just too hard. We were all getting broken, twisted ankles <laughs> and arms that didn't work anymore and it was just a, it was painful. But we got there in the end and the result when you see when you see that world on a giant screen is is no, I don't I mean it's really special to see your films that big, right? Like I, I see stuff in the shots that I didn't see when I was there because my screen was the screen I shoot off is a bit bigger than an iPhone, and the um the the chance to spend time with those creatures and and um you know the, just that whole technical challenge of how can we get these shots with building stuff where going and welding things together and making rigs on boats, build making ways to protect the camera from crocodiles that are going to try and eat it you know ways to get close to crocs it's, it's all that watching the animals trying to work out how on earth because in the past i did it with a little thing a gopro on a stick or a or a small camera that was easy to wield getting this this giant thing you know you know that's the size of a human close to them mm -hmm. with two people that have to operate it because it's two eyes so you've got two people pressing buttons at the same time two people on lenses so it's a pretty um it was technically a, a real challenge and you know by the end of the 100 days i think i knew how to do it <laughs> but um we was definitely a learning curve we made a lot of mistakes in the early parts of it and and learned through it and since then we've made three more or four more imax films i've been shooting them for other people as well as our own productions and so um, we've got better at it now 
So that one took a bit longer than the others to make because we had to learn. But we did get to go to some of the most amazing places and my traditional owner friends took us, allowed us into places that are really, really special. You know, the, the waterfalls, some of these waterfalls in, the, in, in full flood uh, possibly the most spectacular places you can go and you, you can't get in there you know you need to know these people and they need to trust you that you're going to tell their story and be kind to it so it was um it was amazing and Balan was there he came with us on a bunch of shoots he 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 helped us as well in many ways to get into to places that are on close to his country that that was stunning and yeah, it all sort of came together. It was funny because the Kakadu series struck a nerve with the people in Arnhem Land. They all, the, the first TV series I made, they, they, those kids up there, and I go into these communities now, seven years later, and, oh, the Kakadu films. Now, it was the first time they had seen their country mm-hmm. shown in that way, There's, and they, they love the landscape so much, but they had never seen it like that. So, so they would see it from so they welcome the human level as opposed to yeah, yeah, and, and just seeing it like that. And literally, I, I would watch them when they were watching that kakadu one, and I've seen people burst into tears from happiness of seeing their country like that. And, and so, it's a real, a real, a real privilege to be allowed into that world that way. And, and something for the uh, non-Australians who are listening to understand is there's a real link between Indigenous Australian culture and the land, which came out of the documentary as well. Yeah, they, they, they um, I mean, Balang says it really well in there, and, and I've always seen it, that, you know, looking after the land, or they call it looking after country, is is their first law it's the most important thing they do they 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 don't own the land they belong to it Uh, these concepts are the same as going into a church and looking after it if you were to go in and do something to a wild environment that they have their spirits live in and all of that it's the same as going into a church and, and and deciding to dig holes or that's how they that's how they view the natural world and 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 the natural world is the most important thing i I could tell it one story that really speaks to it is there's a man called jeffrey lee who's a traditional owner he he works in a job as a ranger he doesn't get paid very much to do that he lives a very simple life he's the traditional owner of a large area in kakadu in 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 a part of arnhem land there and uh his area sits on a sits on a seven or five, I think it's a five billion dollar or seven billion dollar uranium deposit and the mining companies have been after him for years offering millions, hundreds of millions for him to just agree because he was the last hurdle between them and mining in that area and he's he's consistently fought that and I was like, Jeff, but you you could be a very rich man, you know, you're 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 it and he's like, Oh I could be a, I could be a rich man living somewhere else. But uh, that's not my way. Mm. And he's fought this thing to the highest courts of the land all over the world. And then, and then he finished up selling his, his land to the National Park for one symbolic dollar mm. in order to lock it away from a mining company. How many, even yeah. how many white folks, how many people from any other culture in the world could be so altruistic yeah. towards a patch of land and for him for a clean river and a healthy ecosystem mm-hmm. he, he turns that down and continues to live a simple life if, yeah. if only um half the uh, environment ministers and politicians around all had that kind of attitude right <laughs> well that would be a, it would be a, it would be a different world i think it, it would be so that that gives you an idea of the sort of 
respect and cultural respect they have for their world. So I thought that that was why this film was important to me as well. It's mm. a different view of conservation, right? It's, mm. uh, it's just another angle on why you should look after the place, the planet we live on. And in the documentary we see a, a lot of different animals and plants and so on. Were they something that you chose up front or were they, as you w were camping, you thought, well, here's something we've seen, let's do that? Generally, the um, the stories were pre-planned based on things I knew. Um, so the locations we were going to were pre-planned, but once you get there, you find stuff and you, you happen to stumble on something and it's great and we'll use that. On the whole, I kind of knew what I was looking for and we would go out and spend days trying to get it. Mm -hmm. And then there's a few of those few. The, the most beautiful moments in the film are obviously the things that you never planned because the nicest things in life you don't plan for. The ancient rainforest you mentioned earlier, that was... Uh, that was a story I really wanted to tell because that um, that that little patch of forest, which is it's encased in a much larger Daintree rainforest, but there's only one little pocket of it that is this ancient Gondwana rainforest, mm -hmm. and it sits in there. And that, that that story of connectivity of this this last living treasure that's there was just a beautiful place to end the film and have the crocodile wind up. And, and tell that story of connectivity that that, um, that Balam says so well in that um, all the you know the our survival depends on the survival of all the creatures on the planet. Mm. This rainforest encapsulates that so well. Between a bird there called the cassowary that that feeds on the seeds of these rainforest trees that have become so toxic over time that nothing else can eat them but these seeds can't hatch without passing through the gut of a cassowary so if the cassowary disappears which it's on an endangered list so it's it is disappearing if we don't look after the cassowary that forest will be gone mm -hmm. because those trees need to go through a cassowary in order to germinate yeah. so there's a beautiful story of connectivity as well as an amazing mm -hmm. an amazing location right the, the cassowary which um you know for those who haven't seen a cassowary look it up it's just an amazing animal and really really dangerous Dinosaur. as well <laughs> um, i think yeah, i think there are i think i overblow that the danger <laughs> factor I, I i certainly never felt threatened by them <laughs> everyone loves that story of them killing people but i've never seen it so. um but the, the other thing that i found really fascinating was in terms of the frogs there's so many species of frogs just in this area of australia and the the fact which came out which um sort of made me really open my eyes was the the experts think that there's still 20 percent of all frog species in australia which haven't been discovered which live in this location that blew me away too actually when she said that when jody told me that I was, mm. she's a frog expert she's the australia's probably biggest frog expert and she's like we think 20 percent of the reptiles run Identified, and sure enough, we went out for three nights, and she found a new one. <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't say it in the film that it was a new species because she hadn't been able to check it. But now it's been checked, and it, and it, it was a new it's one. a new species. You mm -hmm. know, like we found a new species in three days, and 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 the way we found that species was that uh, I was like, oh, Jodie, I really want to do a scene with you and frogs. This would be great. Um, and she's like, oh yeah, where do you want to go? And so oh, I've never been up there. That'll be that'd be amazing. And she said, do you know any good places? And I was like, yeah, there's this place I've been swimming with my kids a few times. It's deep in the bush there in Arnhem Land. So many frogs. You're gonna love it. You know, expecting her to find all the frogs she already knows. Mm -hmm. And of course, this little place that's full of frogs to me, a layman. It's, I've seen so many frogs there before. I was like, this, the frogs are frogs. I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna have trouble filming her and frogs. Mm -hmm. um, and we get there, and she's just like, oh my god, this, <laughs> this is amazing. This is like 
frog heaven. I was like, well, I don't know, 50 places like this I could have taken you. She probably would have found 10 new species if we'd actually had time to go to them all. Next set of documentaries, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's a stunning fact that we don't know much about. You know, there's still so much we don't know, which is great. Great for the kids starting out in science. There's um, mm-hmm. lots you know, of opportunity. Yeah, there's a lot of things to do still. So if you love frogs, that's the, that's the place to yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. Frogs is a good uh, a good place to be. So um, we mentioned crocodiles before. The the two running themes in in the in the film is one is Valen himself with, and his connection to the land and his narration, and the other is through the eyes of a a, a, um, a saltwater crocodile named Casper. Yeah. And um, I believe that you had um, an issue with a camera and crocodiles. <laughs> so firstly, two part question. One is how did you get to film them so close given the size of these IMAX um, cameras and the second part is you can tell us about the incident. Yeah sure. We um, So the, the crocs like filming a saltwater crocodiles are one of the few animals and I, and I, I film great whites, I film lots of lots of deadly creatures. Um, I have to say that crocodiles are definitely the most terrifying. They strike fear even in my heart when you're, when you're, when you're in danger. Um, if you go near water in the Northern Territory, you, you, I mean, if there's a croc there, it will eat you. It's not going to think about it. Mm-hmm. It's just going to do it. And, um, and you'd be hard-pressed to survive any kind of croc attack. You know, they're, they're so fast and so full-on that, that um, I knew that filming them was going to be a challenge because, you know, it's one thing. There's sharks and stuff. We can go and dive with, with man-eating sharks and swim around them. And if they're not displaying aggressive behaviour, I'm not terribly worried. I, I can film them behaving normally. But um, crocodiles, crocodiles will go you every time. You, you, so filming them wasn't a real problem because they're only ever attacking you. <laughs> you know, you only ever get that last shot of the ha ha. And so we, we, we built a, we had a cage and uh, some of our shots came, we tried to do them in the wild first by putting the, the cameras in housings. Uh, all the topside stuff, we had the rig strapped to the front of a boat or an airboat and we would strap the, strap the rig down, then we could drive around, made life easy, pull up next to crocs, shoot in 3D. And that was the easy thing. And one of the reasons we chose the crocodiles as well was that I knew that moving around on a swamp with a giant camera strapped to a boat was a lot easier than walking through paddocks with a giant camera. And so the underwater stuff was a camera in a housing, not super large, um, just a normal-sized sort of... I guess the size of a of a travel bag or something, you know, like a, a an airline case that can go above your head, that that sort of size. We had that on a pole, and we would lower that over the side of the boat to try and film these animals underwater. And at one point, we had this thing over we filming a crocodile that had caught a fish, and it was this great scene. And we were, we were right next to it, filming it, and because it was concentrated on the fish, it was ignoring us, and we could film it. And it swallowed the fish. And I saw straight after it swallowed the fish, its eyeball just turned and looked at the camera, and I was like, "Oh no!" <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's now paying attention to us, and we tried to pull the camera out of the water, and this thing just went snap so quick. I couldn't, you couldn't blink in the time that its mouth came over the camera and just grabbed it, broke the pole that was holding onto the camera, and it swam off down the billabong with our hundred thousand dollars worth of camera gear <laughs> and uh, that set us off into a little panic going oh my god the crocs got the camera and it's swimming away and so we followed this thing we were worried it was going to go into an area we couldn't get into right you're not going to jump out of, in the water with it and so we let it go for a bit and we chased it and then finally we drove up behind it and we came up with a, my my colleague hit it on the back with a stick and so it 
bound around to try and bite him and I put my hands in the water very quickly and ripped that camera out of the water and god it was a good feeling you know? <laughs> but you had to, definitely had to weigh up the, the problem it was I was about to lose a, way, a year's wages <laughs> <laughs> or put my hands close to a crocodile's mouth and I'm like oh I could lose my arms or a year's wages I don't know not yeah. something you want to have to <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. It was fun, and we we got the camera back, and the shot's great. It's in the film, mm-hmm. so so that was really good. But we also had the, the stuff in the cage was amazing as well. The cage shots we had done. John Shaw, our underwater cinematographer, he had to sit in a cage with a crocodile, which was. And we had a big opening for the front of the camera, the dome, that a crocodile's nose can easily fit through. And we had a five-metre croc called Smog, who was in that pond and, and first got in there and you can only get one shot because Smog just sat there literally with his nose on the lens the whole time trying to get through the hole in the cage to to slowly eat you and they've got so much patience crocs right they 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 might be ambush predators but they really are the ambush bit they just stay there for hours and we decided with john that the only way he was going to get a shot of it doing anything different other than just staring straight at you like he wants to kill you was uh, was to outbore a crocodile <laughs> so he sat in the water for seven hours through the snorkel on seven hours just sitting there opposite this croc not moving until the croc finally lost interest <laughs> so that you could get a shot of it swimming away and a shot of it swimming back and we got three shots a lot of effort that goes into it. a lot of effort goes into a few shots mm-hmm. yeah yeah but they're important to the story right and that's they're, they're the shots you've never seen because because they're hard to get right mm-hmm. yeah so what was your personal favorite part of the film Oh, look! I love the um, I love the scenes inside the inside a a, tri- a cave with art in it. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a cave in the film that we go into on a man called Charlie Mangulda's country. He's a traditional owner from from this wetland area in Arnhem Land, and every rock, every every rock outcrop in his part of the world is covered in art and. And so Charlie took us to a cave, that, a bun, I've seen a lot of caves up there, but, and he took us to a, 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 a nice one that had beautiful art everywhere. And we sat down in there and, and we were filming and just filming the cave and filming him. And, and he told us, uh, he told me a story which I thought was just amazing. You know, you sort of look at these things and go, oh, this is, you know, this is ancient history that's written on the walls and stuff. And he's like, well, when I was a kid, I lived in this cave. He, 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 that's how it wasn't that long ago, you know, mm-hmm. it just wasn't that long ago. This man, this man as a young child was living in these caves and these caves have rooms and they've got kitchens and living rooms and bedrooms and, you know, and, wow. and when you saw it from that point, it was like, wow, this is amazing. This is, this is like the coolest house ever. And, um, and it wasn't that long ago. It really brought it to life. Well, um, for those of you in Australia who want to see, this it's uh, at IMAX or being released very soon. Uh, it's called Australia: The Wild Top End, and it's in 3D, so you can get the full experience. Um, is it being released overseas? It is. It's already overseas in in about 15 or 20 theaters. IMAX okay. theaters around the US. There's a bunch in the US. There's a bunch in China. There's one in I think in Hong Kong as well. I think there's one in Mongolia even. Oh wow! Um, for your Mongolian listeners, um, <laughs> I do have Mongolian listeners. <laughs> there you go. There's one. It's showing at the um, in Lombatar. Um So it's showing in a bunch of theaters around around the world. I think over there it's got a different title. It's called Australia. The Great Wild North mm-hmm. in all the other countries here. It's called the Wild Top End. Yeah, well, we yeah. know what the Top End is. Yeah, right? people know what the Top End is here, and and um, so yeah, it's showing in a lot of places. It's um, 
I think it's got a lot of heart. It's a film with a lot of heart. I, and I say that, I mean, I'm the filmmaker. It's nice to say that about your own film, but but it does because Balang put so much into it. It's, mm-hmm. it's like, it's a nice, it's a beautiful tale and it's got a great message. Yeah. And so for those of you who want to see a real good look at Northern Australia, go see it. And as, as, as we already mentioned, it's got Balang narrating who talks about the connection of the Indigenous peoples with the land and you get to see some great animals and and have a lot of fun. So what's next for you? I'm making a film at the moment about um, how the ocean creates life on planet Earth. So it's those key functions of the ocean to create your atmosphere, consume your carbon, store it away, Mm -hmm. fix the climate. Um, how the creatures of the sea basically create life on planet Earth and why we must care for the ocean. Yes. So Sounds good. that's the theme and uh, we're filming it by following the EAC, the East Australian Current, which is um, Nemo's real journey. Okay. So you're on Nemo's real journey, you go from Tasmania to Antarctica, from the Great Barrier Reef to Tasmania and down to Antarctica to learn all those functions of ocean currents and all, all that kind of stuff. So again, it's sciencey, it's underwater, which is I love. Mm-hmm. That's great. We've, and um, yeah, it's a really beautiful yeah. and poetic thing with a lady called Sylvia Earle, who science listeners might know as, mm-hmm. as the greatest, uh, well, I think the greatest oceanographer that's ever lived. Yeah. So you'll have to come back and tell us about that when you've done that. I'd love to. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time today, Nick. No worries. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. You can check out the Brains Matter website at www.brainsmatter.com. That's www.brainsmatter.com. And you can find all the other episodes of the show there. Just click on the podcast link on the right hand side. There's also other information on the site, such as subscription details, both by iTunes and manually. If you want to support the show, have a look at the support the show link. You can make a donation via PayPal. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can leave an entry on this episode's show notes on the webpage, or you can send me an email. All my contact information can be found on the site. The theme music Future is performed by Cut Copy and comes courtesy of Glenn Gertz from Modular Records. I hope you enjoyed the show. Bye for now. Thank you.